better. Okay. Hi, guys. It's Miriam. And welcome to Notorious Women Podcast. A, a comedy, comedy podcast. podcast. About? About some of history's most notorious women. Women. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you guys are doing okay. Um, yeah. I, you're hanging in there. You're not going too crazy. You haven't killed anybody. I mean, uh, the world is going crazy. Uh, so a guy this week listen. went into a, a, a grocery store with a, a, a KKK mask on. Uh, what? I just read another man shot the the security guard in a Dollar General for asking the customer, a customer to put on a mask. Are uh, you shitting me? No, people are losing their minds. People oh, are losing, people are their, losing their minds. It's like that. That's it's not insane. That yeah, it's like what? Like Matt Hood is just like, I'm like, dude, just show your face. Like, I, I want to see your face. Like, yeah. I just want to know who you are. You can yeah. hate me all day, but like, who are you? Like, I don't care. You hate me take it off. reasons. That's your problem, not mine. I want you to take it off at the register because I want to see your face. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, Tell me all about how you hate me. I'm here for it. I'm not. Yeah, and I, in the, and the man that shot the uh, the security guard, so it was a woman that he asked. He's like, ma'am, could you put on your mask? Because, you know, most stores you have yeah. to put on a mask. That's the rule. And That's she, the rule for every store now. Get over it. She got annoyed and left in, a, um, in some vehicle. And then they said, like, 20 minutes later, it came back. And two men came in and attacked the guy. And then one of them shot the guy in the head. <gasps> so he's dead? Uh, I'm not sure. I think what? he's in critical condition. Oh you get shot God. in the head. This guy's like, I don't make enough for this guy. You know, <laughs> you know what's going to happen to those guys who came back and shot the guy and that woman? They're going to go to jail, and you know what they're going to get? Coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. fun. Mm, were know. they being paranoid? Can you, can you imagine all the people who've been falsely accused who's in jail, and now, now they're, like, in oh, God. Like, fear just... of being, like, it's so unfair. And the amount of people in jail that shouldn't be in jail, the percentages are so high. I'm not, I mean, do I believe in jail? A little, but not a lot. Well, all the child molesters, did you hear about the ones that were let out here yeah. in California and then got arrested, like, within, like, four days or something? You're like, you know yes, what? they always people. stupid assholes. Yeah. How about the guy who was selling marijuana 15 years ago? Why didn't you let him out? Okay, yeah. and then the child molesters never let them out. Just never. Yeah, no, keep the child just molesters. Oh, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. I'm okay with that. That makes sense. If you want to talk justice, let's have justice. Put on a lighter note, because we don't want this to be the bummer podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did something that said my old lady soul, uh, my inner uh, senior citizen, I did a free <laughs> trial for for BritBox and Acorn Media. <laughs> oh my God, you've done I it, Lavetta. You've lady. done it. You're retired in floral dresses. Oh, in cozy sweaters. Oh, you have the slippers, the ones that you they're the, they're they're not slippers. They're your house shoes. <laughs> the verbiage is important. <laughs> So I 
because I wanted to watch. I will say, for me, I think Brit Box is better because you get Bletchley Circle, you get Agatha Christie, you can get uh, oh, Wayne Pratt's Mysteries. Yeah, uh, oh, Acorn right now. Yeah, and it's what for uh, now. Brit Box is only seven days, but uh, Acorn yeah. is for thirty days. So I might keep that. What is a little bit longer? What is Acorn? Acorn is, is another, like, British mystery. Acorn has a lot of procedurals and a lot of, like, mm. more modern, like, if you love SVU, like, Law and Order, Acorn is for no, you. No, I need, like, ah. Rose, I need Rosemary and Thyme. You know what I mean? Like, Rosemary and Thyme on like, Britbox. I love Rosemary and Thyme. I love that. So they took it off Netflix. I know. I know. I can't keep watching it. That's on Britbox. So... And Bletchley Circle. Maybe I'll just like. I love Bletchley yeah. Circle. Yeah, and I started watching this. Is that Francisco. still going? No, I, they have. I think they only did two seasons or two series, as they call it, uh, for the original. Okay. And then now they have um, two of the women from the original are in the San Francisco one. Um, and the San Francisco. Oh. One, it's so funny because I can tell they shoot it in Canada because it's trying to look like oh, San Francisco, always, yeah. like. So much cheaper. Um, you would never shoot in San Francisco. That's insane. Yeah, but I, I like the actors. I like, um, yeah, it's pretty good. And, and then, of course, Hollywood, as I told you before we got on, I highly recommend that. That'll make yeah, you feel good. If you that. need something that'll make you, because it has that glamour of old Hollywood, which is one of the reasons we like to watch those old movies, because they're so glamorous yeah. and pretty. And, um, but it has, like, very much like my current it. life. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I highly recommend that, but um, I think we should get started. I think I'm first this week. Sounds um, good. I have no idea. So I have a short one this week, but it is a, I think it's a fun one because I'm trying to like more for myself than for, uh, but I also think it's probably for the listeners too. Is you know, it's good to stay informed think, on what's going on, but they can get over. But I think we're all there with you, Lavetta, and we need like a moment of joy. Yeah. So my notorious woman this week is Clara Peller. Do you know who Clara, Clara Peller? Peller is? Not not a not a clue. Okay. So let me tell you a little story. Uh, All right, tell me story. Clara Peller was born on August fourth, nineteen o two, in Chicago, Illinois, to Judith okay. and Wolf Swordlove. Swordlove is S-W-E-R-D-L-O-V-E, Sword Love, yeah, sword who sword were love. immigrants from Russia. I think they were uh, Jewish, uh, Russian Jew, uh, Jewish people. Sword Love. Sword Love. Um, now, her father's name was Wolf, which is, that is an awesome fucking name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Badass. Now, he decided to move the family after being drafted for the second time while in Russia. And so he's like, I'm out oh, of here, shit. bitch. And it's cold as hell. Right. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Chicago's really 1902 cold wasn't a good year for the Jews in Russia. I'll say that. Oh, really? It was, it was quite, yeah. It was, it was a bad year. I'll say that, too. So he's like, I got to fight for you. Yeah. And I got to face discrimination. I'm out. Yeah, they, they were not, let's, how do I put this, nice to the Jews. That's a yeah. That's a gentle way of putting. Yeah. And you know how I learned that from Downton Abbey. Educated hashtag. Downton Abbey. 
Um, so now she was, uh, so her parents eventually settled down and had a total of eight children. Woo, thank what? God for birth control, man. Dude, that's all natural childbirth right there. Okay. You know, Judith was like, another kid? Damn it. Now. Why you keep touching me? I know, right? He's like, but I got to get some love and woman. You my woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Give me that hole. And, and listen, right. Judith wanted to get some love in too. She just didn't want a baby for her. You know. <laughs> right? Damn. Why does it got to be in my body? Shit. <laughs> I know. You know what? Somebody said, when some comedian who's much smarter and funnier than me once said, they were like, if they could give birth, it'd be abortion drive-through clinic. Oh, yeah, drive-through. <laughs> um, and that the technology for it would be like, zip, oh, you're good, thanks. Yeah. Nothing to you talk about. Go back about. to work. Oh, oh my God, so for a true. week, heavy bleeding and sobbing. Nope, not for you. No, you're a man. Nope. You're a man, suck it up. Uh, so... Now, at, now Clara at age twenty, so she was a nice Jewish girl, first uh, mm-hmm. first generation American. Ooh, yeah, yeah. She's a humble people, you know. Hope um, for the family, yes. Yeah, she's trying to make her way in the world. So at age twenty, which is about right on schedule, she married a local young man, mm-hmm. a jeweler. Um, okay. And they settled down into domestic life and eventually had two children. Twenty years old, gosh. A boy and a girl. Oh, man. But. <laughs> I was not ready to have children at 20. <laughs> but by age 28, she divorced, which I think, oh. wow, that is, like, unusual back then. Like, you know, Very, so this yeah. was in 30, 1930. Both like, in their culture and in, in the culture of the country. Yeah. Like, so I wonder what happened there, but it, I couldn't really find a lot of information on that. But I uh, think so she, she got married at 20. <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> That's usually what happens. Um, and so now for the next 35 years, she worked. She had a normal working class, middle class uh, life. She worked as a manicurist at a local Chicago beauty salon and later okay. moved to suburban North Shore area to be near her da- her daughter. Uh, Marlene. I mean, I remember manicures. Go on. Yeah. So she has just like a normal, regular life, and you know, she's just, you know, this. She's moving in with her daughter. Like, I mean, yeah. Okay. About what most women in that time. So thirty. So I'm thinking 1930. So so now we get in the 1960s, 1965. So she now along the way, she she works uh, sporadically as an actor because who did it back okay. then? You know, because she right. was around when Hollywood began and, like, you know, so uh, show folks. Show folks is probably everywhere, you know, especially if she's um, part of the Jewish community who we know have brought in, mm-hmm. the Jewish community brought in our American sense of sarcasm, uh, a lot of yeah. our comedic uh, sensibilities. Um, a lot of American comedic sensibilities are from our Jewish immigrants. Yeah. Our Jewish Why? Population. Because they hated us. You might as well make a joke about it. Just might as well make a joke about it. So, um, and I also think it's always been my opinion that, you know, people do well. A lot of people, like a large portion of a group, do well in uh, in a field that they're allowed to to enter and do well in, right? I was just going to say, like, because show folk were not considered classy, for lack of a better term, they could do that, you know, if you want to demean yourself on the stage. And they're like, cool, you give me money, right? Great, great, great. 
And make it a living in money. general in the U.S. when you are an immigrant or if you have no money, it's, it's tough, especially back then, right? So you, oh, yeah. for a lot of people, it's like, show folks, if you hit it big, like, you make more money, right? Like, then you can make hustling a wrestler. Mm-hmm. So, so she had always worked as an actor, probably a lot of her friends or whatever, and she continued to do so after she retired from being a manicurist. Now, at age 80, so we're, like, 1982. Um, now, but wow. she started doing more acting, like, actually, in her, after she had retired in her 60s and her 70s. At oh, age, my God. Is this the Where's the Beef Lady? Maybe. Did I guess that right? Maybe. Oh, Maybe. my God! <laughs> <laughs> now, at age 80, she was actually hired. So she had been doing... Um, commercials, like I said, after she retired. Like my friend, my roommate's mother, she used to do a lot of background work. She's a, a lady from the Philippines, and she loved it. She's like, oh, my God, I agree. I get free food. I get, they pay me. I sit around all day. Like, it's a great wow. thing. I wish my grandmother would get into it. But you have to have um, – You have to have show patience. Person, so. you have to yeah, have you have to have a lot of patience and no drive to want to be one of those people who are speaking. Right. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? So you have to, you have to have training to be good at it. You, so, you have to have some training, yeah. So she uh so she was hired at age eighty to play a manicurist for a commercial in set in Chicago set in a Chicago barbershop. So uh um, okay. they were so impressed by her no nonsense manners and unique voice, the agency later asked her to sign a contract uh to be an an actress for the agency. Though she was okay. hard of hearing and suffering from emphysema uh, which limited right. her ability to speak long, you know, a lot of dialogue. She was, all of a sudden, she was in, like, all these commercials in her 80s. Like, oh, yeah. You know, she was, uh, she attracted, uh, so she was, like, the cleaning lady in an advertisement for the new Massachusetts State Lottery, uh, the Mega Bucks in the 1970s. Uh, she worked in commercials pretty steady for 15 years. From retirement to like, so like 65, 66 to like her 80s or whatever. But in 1984, she hit the big time. Yes. First airing on January 10th, 1984, the Wendy's commercial portrayed a fictional fast food competitor entitled Big Bun, where three elderly ladies are served an enormous hamburger bun containing a small hamburger patty. While two (laughs) of the women are commenting on the size of the bun, they're interrupted by Clara, who looks around in vain for customer assistance while making the outraged demand, where is the beef? Where is the beef? Where is the beef? <laughs> oh, my Where's God. Where is the beef? Her delivery is perfect. I looked it up again. I was like, I love her. Like, her delivery is so great. She's like, where's the beef? <laughs> like, it's like, it's so where's great. Where's the beef? So, it's, uh, for those of you who remember the 80s, even if you were, like, a little tyke, like we were, like if the you're 25, I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> this was so funny to see this old lady on this sheet. So, where's the beef? Instantly became a catchphrase across the United States and Canada. Kind of like she was how iconic. the day, huh? Yes, she was iconic kinda, in society. Yeah, like kind of like the hump day. Like we don't really have those or the what's up guys, maybe. But yeah. like hump day, like they said that. Principal said that they had to outlaw hump day <laughs> in the hallway. So the kids would be like, "What day it is? Mike, 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 Mike. It's hump day." <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So Where's the Beef was everywhere, because remember, they only had three channels back then. No, I'm just kidding. But they had yep. very limited channels. No, but they had, like, and, five channels. And, like, yeah, like HBO, five. if your parents were rich. You know what I'm saying? Right. So Where's the Beef became a cultural phenom, and she became yeah. a cult star. Wendy's mm-hmm. uh, hamburgers and Wendy's uh, franchise sales jumped 31% to $945 wow. million dollars in 1985 worldwide. Give that woman a raise. Yeah, Wendy's senior vice president for communications, Denny Lynch, stated at the time that, quote, with Clara, we accomplished as much in five weeks as we did in 14 and a half years, end quote. Wow. Wow. Former vice president um, Walter Mondale also used a line against rival Senator Gary Hart in his bid for the Democratic nomination in the 1984 presidential campaign. That's how popular it was. Yeah, I vaguely remember this. Where's me? It's definitely a Uh, child, but yeah. Now, so they, so after that commercial with the women, and and there were always three women, but Clara was the breakout star. star. So there were always three women, and they're like, you see this huge bun. She's like, where's me? She's like, where's me? Where's me? You know, so then they had this, you know, (laughs) obviously it's a campaign, so they had to have follow-up sequels. So uh, various scenes, different commercials had her storming through drive-through counters or in telephone calls to fast food executives attempting to, uh, oh, to a fast food executive on his yacht. <laughs> so she calls him, get him on the phone. Where's the beef? And he's like, ah! and then his hat falls, flies off. And like, it's so, it's like so wide, like big drama and like big comedy. I love it. Very broad humor. Um, but it's so funny. Now, while hugely popular, the advertising campaign proved to be short-lived, at least for Wendy's. For the campaign, Clara had made after-scale wages, $317.40 per day for the initial commercial. So she got her day rate in 1984. Okay. Um, her That's fee, still not that much for 1984. I know. But her fee for uh, Wendy's as a Wendy spokesperson was not disclosed. So she admitted in an interview with People Magazine to having earned um, about $30,000 at the time, which is just under $75,000 in today's money. Uh, from that the first two right commercials. Well, yeah. from the first two commercials. That's, and then profits a lot of from, money. Yeah, then profits from, tie, from product tie-in sales. So Wendy later alleged that the company had paid her a total of $500,000, which is $1.2 million in today's money for her work on the campaign, though she denied earning that much. Yeah. So it's probably... She probably didn't. No, I mean, but $1.2 million, I think that's probably in line. Like if you do, let's say you do four commercials. I've heard that. Yeah, I mean, and they're they're national. They're, I mean, at the time too, like you, you were like, you wanted a commercial because that's going to pay for everything. Yeah. Like, and that's a, commercials that's don't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like, even $1.2 million a day, that's a, that's a hell of a thing. Because now we also know that it leads yeah. to other things. Like, it leads to guest spots on TV right. and, like, you know, to get a campaign like that back then. Um, but it also led for her because then she started getting interviews, you know, and it led to other things. People yeah. know, like, it, it, she became, like, you know, so... I'm not mad at the $1.2 million, but she disputes that amount. So I'm guessing maybe she made, um, let's say they paid her, because, you know, they're going to 
overinflate what she made, and then maybe she might under-report. Yeah, yeah so she might not have wanted million dollars. Let's say she made seven hundred thousand dollars. Like, Which by today's standards, that's that's not enough. One point two, I would say, yeah, that's that's about right. That sounds about right for like four commercials, right? Yeah. Um, for what she but, did and how powerful they were, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, per the terms of her uh, SAG uh, union contract, because it was SAG, just SAG, but not SAG after the actress was free to participate in any commercials for products, goods, or services. So nowadays, what they do is. Uh, like Flo. Flo can't do um, nope. anything else. They would buy out. Like Flo can't do other commercials. Like they bought. So that's why they pay Flo so much because she yep. can't do other commercials. And it's like the Verizon guy or like because she's so synonymous with progressive and she's so distinctive looking. Also, remember the Pine You know the Pine Salt Lady, the black lady? Uh, I love the Pine Salt Lady. The Pineapple Lady, and I know some black actors who hate that campaign, but I'm like, she literally said, that's the power of Pineapple, baby, for like 10 years. <laughs> like, it is and they came from gobs of money. <laughs> I remember when those commercials first came out, and I remember thinking, like, she's actually a good actress, which I don't know if that's true or not. But so I've, I've done this before where I think someone is, like, Shakespeare-trained and actually they're a model. Um, so but you know what? Long. If that's if you make millions of dollars, let's say the Pine Saw lady over the course of ten years made two point five million dollars. Okay, right? I'm not. I'm not mad she at that. She made two point five million dollars. Say that's the power of Pine Saw, baby. <laughs> Come on. You like, can't be mad at that. <laughs> the Popeyes lady, like, because they also make now you make money with corporate tie-ins. So the money that they mm-hmm. pay you is all – but back then, they didn't have – I don't think they had that. So now no. today, no. Clara would be making – she'd easily make probably $5 million. Well, like, she would host SNL by the time she Yeah, done. exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. So now – she, but she was free at the time, and that was their mistake, to pursue other goods and services. So they didn't really buy – so they didn't buy her out. So the one if, if it's close to $1.2 million, that is a lot of money because they have to pay her more so she doesn't do stuff for other people. That's what yes. they pay us for, right? Yeah. So uh, for those of our listeners out there who don't realize, that's why they pay the actors. It's called uh, – um, uh, they pay us commercials. Um, so let's say you, you book a uh, – It's a, a non-competitive commercial. agreement. Yeah, you can't right. do progressive. You can't do other kinds of soup or anything now, that would be a competition back, for the Yeah, soup. back in the day, it was like, because I had a manager for like a hot second when I was a young teenager, and um, I, I actually no, I, well, I didn't sign with her because I had to choose between like being in like band and having a regular life or doing that, and uh, being in band and having a regular life was chosen for me. So, point is, I remember they explained to me that, like, if you got a Campbell's Soup commercial, it would be like you couldn't do another soup commercial, but you right. could totally do a pickle commercial. Right. Or, like, they weren't that. And this was, They're like, the early 90s. I mean, that's, that's yeah, still so true today. Like, they... they... Conflict. They're called conflicts, but now today, now today, on in addition to that, what they do, like with someone, like I said, like Flo, uh, the Popeyes yeah. lady, um, the Verizon guy who's now Sprint guy, like I know now, they must have paid him so much money. I've, I keep starts, wondering how much Sprint paid him. You, 
You know when it started? Remember the Dell guy, dude? You get the Dell. Remember that guy? I do. It started with yeah. that because I remember when that was running, and I asked them, but I was like, how much do you think they're getting paid? And they were like, he read Because, you know, when you first do the commercials, they don't know if it's going to be a hit. They just pay you your day rate. No. And then you're hoping they it runs your residuals, right? So you're hoping, like, right. it runs. So every time it runs, you get your residuals. And then usually it runs, like, 13 weeks. They pay you for 13 weeks. So the, your day rate is for the 13 weeks conflict, so you don't do another commercial within 13 weeks. Right. And then every time it runs, you get your, your residuals. However, if it's going well, they'll re-up the 13 weeks, and so the conflict is still in effect, right? So that's why they keep paying you as long as the commercial's running. So that's why you make so much money off commercials, right? But what happens yeah. is that eventually commercials run out. They move on to another campaign and da-da-da. But when you're, like, the spokesperson, they're paying you yeah. to basically not take other jobs. That's basically what they're paying you. So, um, yeah. but nowadays... If you're so synonymous with a a, a product, kind of like a, also what's her, the mom from uh, I love her from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, oh, oh God, Doris. what's her name? Doris. She Doris had the, yeah. She had the. Um, she was saying she was like it bought two of my houses. Um, she had like the Glade scented thing yeah. or whatever back in the day. She had like those campaigns. Like she was her and her husband, she was like nagging. Not nagging, but like bothering her husband. She was yeah. young. She was like she did like she was a campaign the spokesperson for it for like I think like two or three years and she was like, Yeah, that paid them. That paid for two of my houses. Um and so but nowadays they buy up everything. So that's why they pay you more if you bec- if you're lucky yeah. enough to land in something like this. So yeah. with that said, so she, so, but she was free. They didn't have her down as like a person. She could do, you know, bread commercials. She could did, do a Popeye's commercial. Did she do other so things? She did. She actually signed a contract with the Campbell Soup Company because she's a big star, right? So to advertise okay. their Prego Pasta Plus Spaghetti Sauce. Now in the commercial though, she, and I actually looked this up. It's so cute. She's sitting in a chair, like, you know, with a lace thing on the back and, um, and she says, um, I found it. I really found it. And then it goes to the Prego sauce. And, and basically the premise is that she found the beef. So where's the beef? She found the beef. Oh, but, my God, I remember this. So that aired in 85. So now, um, so because of that commercial, Wendy's decided to terminate her contract. And I see their point because – they're, they're saying that basically the Prego commercial infringed upon their um, their copyright because basically in Wendy's, she's saying where's the that. beef. And the, impl- yeah, and the implication is that you can only find the beef at Wendy's, right? Yeah. So I get that. I can see why they were mad, but they really should have thought about that that because because I don't know so why popular, they did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, depends on who's in charge. So they. Yeah. Um, they they termed they terminated her contract, um, and then uh, in announcing the dismissal, um, Wendy's date uh, Denny Lynch stated, "quote Clara can find the beef only in one place, and that is Wendy's." End quote. Her response okay. to that was short and swift. Uh-huh. She said, "quote I've made the millions, and they don't appreciate me." End quote. So they okay. should have locked her down. They should have put in her contract. They should have locked her down. Her I mean, salary. she just took another job. Do you know yep. what I mean? Like, yep. they should not – that's very specific. Like, she took another job. If you wanted to lock her down, you pay her that money. You didn't want to lock her down. What do you think she's going to do? Yeah. And she yeah. should do. That's her – this is a job. 
you, yeah. she's not doing it because she loves Wendy so darn much. And this is why the old Spice guy is locked out on a contract. You know, that's why they pay you so much nowadays. Yeah, because notice, you don't, I don't see Flo doing other commercials. I don't see the Sprint guy doing it. I don't even see Jan, the Toyota lady, doing other commercials. The Spice guy's in a couple of shows. Yeah, he can, you can do, you know, I even heard that the the Popeyes lady, she, because I was like, why doesn't she work more? Because I saw her a while ago in like a CSI episode or something, and I almost didn't recognize her because she had on like a hairpiece or whatever. And I was like, I was like, oh my god, that's a Popeyes lady. But she, she, her contract I heard is so specific. She can't be on screen with certain products. So you know what they oh do? My they god. pay the Popeyes lady a lot of fucking money. So the Popeyes yeah. lady. Got time to only bought another on. house doing theater on this another theater. island and is doing yeah. theater. That's what, I, so, girl, that's what I would Papa, do. Yeah, Papa's lady is is fine. Okay, so um, so now yeah, she's not sad. She's not crying. No, she's not. She, that's what people are clawing and hoping for. Um, yeah. Now it sounds like her thing was like about money, like what she was saying about Wendy. It sounds like she was right, Clara, because following the conclusion of the Where's the Beef campaign. Wendy's restaurant entered a two-year sales slump. Vice <laughs> President Lynch, yeah, he later admitted that consumer awareness of the Wendy's brand did not recover for another five years. And not until the advent of the Dave Thomas commercial. I was just yep. going to say, with, it, with like him talking about his daughter. Why don't yeah. I remember this stuff? Does because this brain that's how powerful commercials are. They That's really why advertisers are. pay so much money because everybody's hoping to get the Where's the Beef, the uh, the Old Spice, the you know Progressive. Everybody's hoping. Even um, with Dennis Haysburg with uh, Allstate, right? Like everybody's hoping to get someone oh, yeah. like that. Like it becomes synonymous with you know like because sometimes I'll be like Allstate, and then I remember his voice. It's like Allstate. I'm like, oh, okay, he's with Allstate. Because sometimes I'll be like, is he with State Farm? I'm like, no, he's Allstate. Because you remember, you're in good hands, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're in good yeah, hands so. with Allstate. And you're like, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, now, despite the setback with Wendy, she continued to make most of her newfound fame, uh, making the most of her newfound fame, granting numerous press good. interviews and making several guest TV appearances. Um, yes, I remember that. Yeah, amused interviewers and friends by claiming not to know exactly how old she was. Once telling a frustrated <laughs> Social Security clerk who was given three different ages by her that she was, quote, whichever one will get me Social Security, end quote. Now, <laughs> that's what I would say, too. Hey, now, how you remember? This you is your favorite. SNL? I know. Yeah. Remember you saying she'd be on SNL? Actually, on April I 14th, did. 1984, she made a cameo oh appearance on SNL, uh, which was hosted by the time, uh, at the time, um, by uh, the the uh, the Democratic presidential candidate from 1972, George McGovern. So she what know, a terrible. She, and she also, <laughs> I know, right? That sounds terrible. Um, she also was in a uh, the low budget 1985 comedy, Moving Violations. Um, she, I don't uh, she was in a film where she uttered, where's the bag? A reference to her Wendy's commercial fame. <laughs> and Mary Cohen's <laughs> The Stuff. She appeared with Abe Vigoda in a commercial uh, shouting, where's the stuff? 
Um, Get it, girl. She was an episode of the Steven Spielberg Amazing Stories. She had a cameo as a motorist on, uh, on, and she her line was, cut out that bebopping as the main character uh, starts singing uh, opera. Now, on in 1986, she made an appearance at WrestleMania. <laughs> I can see that about her. Yeah. That feels right. So Clara was living the dream, and I just she brought me so much joy. Those commercials brought me so much joy, and yeah, there awesome. and millions and millions of people. Um, but in 1987, one week after her 85th birthday, Clara Peller passed on August 11th, Aww. 1987. She is buried at Wyndham Jewish Cemetery in Chicago. So that's Clara Aww. Peller. The so where is the beast? She's awesome. Lady. Where is the I love that, right? <laughs> Honestly, I didn't go to Wendy's. I just liked the commercial. <laughs> I, that was my first, one of my first jobs, I don't know if it was my first, but that was one of my first jobs, um, Wendy's. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah. I didn't discover oh, yeah. Wendy's until I was in my early 20s. I was on tour with a theater group, and, you know, every day for lunch, we stopped them were very cheap. So, mm-hmm. when, and then yeah. Wendy's turned out to be one of your best bets, because you could get a salad and, like, a baked potato. Yep. But also yep. a frosty. So, you're like, yeah, I can get nutrients. But really, I'm doing the nutrients for the Frosty. And that was the yep. first time. I was, because I remember that. They were like, you don't know what a Frosty is? And I was like, no, I don't know. Such an, such an yeah. innocent dove. Come here. Get a chocolate one. So I did. <laughs> 99 cents. Especially when they had that 99 cent menu. Girl, no, exactly, because we had no money. So it was like. I know. $3.82 later, you had, like, lunch. That's there was a vegetable. Yeah. So that's my notorious one. Yeah, no, it was. It was like, Who's yours this week? My notorious one. So I've been watching, um, you watch the show Zoe's Playlist? Zoe. I, I watched the pilot because I like the uh, lead girl. She was on Suburbia, which I liked that show when it was on. Oh, Suburbia. that's her. Yeah, I like that show. I watched it only very little, but I liked it. Um, I love her in this. And the show is like, look. They put on a musical every week, and so mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm all in, and, like, Mandy Moore is the choreographer, and I'm like, yes, girl, because, like, I love her choreography, so I watch the show. And Mandy the, Moore? You mean her, Mandy Moore from This Is Up? No. Good question. There is another person named Mandy Moore, spelling the oh, same, okay. who is one of, like, a great, great choreographer. Okay. Um, And, no, she would be too tired, I think, to do both things. Because <laughs> um, that, that seems like a, <laughs> a full-time anyway, job. They, they being on a hit the, TV show, I think it's a full-time job. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot, you know. Yeah. Like, I would feel like that's too much. Um. Anyway, so I was watching, I was, like, catching up, and there was an episode where they talk about a woman named Ada Lovelace. Now, we oh. talk about, you know, diversity and, the, you know, try to get different things. This woman is so white, she's translucent. I mean, I have oh. never. Oh, I have never, like, I went blind. Uh-huh. Okay. But very, very wealthy. But did some really interesting things. So she was born December 10th, 1815. Uh, her name, uh, was, she was born Augusta Byron. Was, she was the only legitimate child of Lord Byron the poet, and his oh. wife, Lady Byron. 
So you know he hung around, okay, with like lots of women. But the oh, one child, yeah, I know, like, he's got like in wedlock, right? Like, which is so much bullshit. But like, that's how like like right when you're that translucent, that's how people saw you. So, um, she they called her Ada, so that she okay. was named Augusta, but uh, named after his sister, who they also was named Augusta, but they called Ada. So they called her Ada, a wife after she, a uh, oh, wife. <laughs> he separated from his wife a month after Ada was born. So yeah. back in the day, you know how women tend to get custody of the children? Men tend to get custody of the children. Really? In cases of separation. Yeah. Um, huh. My guess is that it had more to do with uh, with your progeny, your heirs. So I don't know but if it's upper class then. But it's also you know like I mean? a way not to pay women child support or spousal support. So yeah. women do. Yeah, you know what I mean? Really because I was like, then. men could never nurse the baby. That was never an option, no matter how rich you yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. And that was mostly how the children. Now they all had wet nurses too, if you knew that rich. But like, yeah, of course. There was like technical reasons why, but uh, he did not argue. Um, and five weeks later, he left England forever. I'm lying to you. He, oh. They divorced five weeks later, but he left England forever for months later. Um, oh wow. He he wrote he commemorating the party the parting in a poem that begins is thy face like thy mother's my fair child exclamation point Ada exclamation point sole daughter of my house and heart now Aww. I find it a little like it's beautiful it's not his sole daughter and he's leaving her so I do <laughs> like it's like. Yeah, no, that's that's not. But like, no, like you're like leaving. You know what I'm saying? Um, well, men have to learn that that's great sentiment. Those words are lovely, but the, a baby need a daddy there. She needs food. She mm-hmm. needs attention. Like she needs, she her needs dad. money, and she needs like she you needs to say hi. How you feeling? Right? Yeah, she needs um, a good role model. Way- like. But back then, I will say, in his defense, back then, it's like, you know, he uh, he basically claimed her, which was very important back then socially. He claimed her. Yeah. So he's like, I've done my duty. Yeah, basically. <laughs> no, he's like, yep, she is mine. Okay, bye. <laughs> uh-huh. so he, yeah. Okay, so this is how Wikipedia put it. Lord Byron expected his child to be a, quote, Glorious boy, and was disappointed when Lady Byron gave birth to a girl. Cute. Um, so because they didn't know then that they, that was on him. That's because he he shot out. Yeah, no, exactly. Chromosome. Now he he didn't uh, he did he didn't even try to claim his parental rights. Like he clearly wanted to go, but he did request mm. that his sister keep him informed of Ada's welfare, for which we should be grateful. I think. I think that, well, he didn't want to be her father, but he did care that she was, like, okay. Okay. See, he sent her money. Okay, this is what I need to know. He he was so drunk the whole time. 
Um, no, it said well, that he very he reluctantly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That he reluctantly signed the deed of separation. Um, but it was it was an acrimonious separation, and she, Lady Byron, continued throughout her life to make allegations about his quote immoral behavior. Oh, um, so this right. Mm, uh, this set of events made her, her, the daughter, Ada, infamous in Victorian society. Um, oh. So she didn't have any relationship with her father. And when she was eight years old in 1824, uh, she, that he died in, in, the, in the Greek War. Um, mm. So her mother was the only significant parental figure, but it was really her grandmother that raised her. Oh, also, uh. fun fact. Uh, she was not shown a uh, the picture, a portrait of her father until her 20th birthday. So, you know, you can't, like, Instagram stalk your, you know, runaway daddy at that time. <laughs> <laughs> you have what about all the knowing that is? Because he was so famous know, right? and so, like, that was annoying. Insane. You're like, this motherfucker? Yeah. Are you serious? Like, not one portrait anywhere in this house? Mother was quite an was was a quite. Here's what I'll say about her: she was basically left in the care of her maternal grandmother Judith, um, and Judith doted on her. So this like only significant parental figure. I'm going to give Grandma the credit of being a significant parental figure. This is me, Miriam, giving Grandma credit. Okay. Okay. I think. That that I I feel like we don't do that. It's either the mother or the father, and that's it. But if someone else who is your family takes care of you, they're they're acting like a parent. Oh, um, grandmas are the best. For those I mean, of us that are grandmas, they're the best. I the best grandmas. Um, yeah. So, uh, because the societal attitude at the time which favored the husband in every separation, which is insane. Um, sorry. Sorry, man. Um, of course, with the welfare of any child acting as mitigation, but it was still the society needed to see that really she belonged with the mother. So her mother had to present herself as loving to the rest of society. So this included writing anxious letters to Lady Milbank, the grandma, about her daughter's welfare with a cover note saying, to retain the letters in case she had to use them to show maternal concern. Um, in wow. one lady, in one letter, she referred to her daughter as, quote, it. I talk to it for your satisfaction, not my own, and shall be very glad when you have it under your own. That's This is the mother well. writing letters to the grandmother about to grandma. her daughter, it. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, the grandmother so, like, the cover letter was like, eh. So is the grandmother is, is her mother? Oh, it's her mother, not her her mother. It's her, her mother. mother-in-law. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Um. So when she was a teenager, Lady Byron, Ada's mother, uh, had her get. She made sure her close friends were watching her for any sign of moral deviation. Um. Ada dubbed these observers as quote the Furies. Um. And she later complained that they exaggerated and invented stories about her. Well, I'm not sure that they did that. 
So, but when she was a child, she was often ill. Um, when she was eight, she experienced headaches that obscured her vision. Um, in June 1829, she was paralyzed after a bout of measles. Too bad there was no vaccine then. Anyways, oh, wow. I'll continue. <laughs> <laughs> Total side note. Nothing to do with nothing. She was subjected to continuous bed rest for nearly a year. Um, oh, my word. And by 1831, she was able to walk with crutches. So despite wow. these illnesses, she developed mathematical and technological skills. When she was 12 years old, she decided she wanted to fly. She went about the project methodically. She was very imaginative, and she was very passionate. Um, her first step in February, February 1828 so it was to construct wings. She investigated different material and sizes. She considered various materials for the wings with paper, oil, silk, wires, and feathers. Um, I would just be going with feathers because birds. Um, but I shouldn't do this, so I didn't. Uh, so she examined the anatomy of birds to determine the right proportion between the wings and the body. And she wrote a book called Flyology. She illustrated it. Um, and she decided what equipment she would need. Um, she was, for example, she wrote a compass to, quote, cut across the country by the most direct road. Right, because once you're flying, you need to know where you're going. I think that's very clever. Um, yeah. In 1833, she had an affair with a tutor. She tried to elope with him, so she's 18. She tried to elope with him, but she was caught. The tutor's relatives recognized her, and they contacted her mother, the Lady Byron and her mm. friends, who really only care about looks, uh, covered yeah. up the incident, which didn't work because I'm talking about it now. Um, well, also her mother became, sounds like yeah. her mother probably was like really, really strict, and that makes you want to be like, oh, I must yeah. get away now. And she also, I'll get to it later, but she also was afraid that Ada had mental illness that Lord Byron had, and so I'll talk about it later. But I'll start saying it now because she—that's she encouraged education. She encouraged math because she was trying to to downplay what she considered. Lord Byron's mental illness, which I think is more like alcoholism. I was going to say, um, he was an alcoholic, but back then they thought that yeah. was like, uh, indication of like a moral deviant nature or something. Exactly. Like, no, so she, she was sort of like crazy scared about that. Um, but it's like, no, he's, he's an alcoholic. He should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not going to be invented for another hundred years, but you know. Can you imagine being raised like a mother, by a mother like that though? That'd be so freaking Oh my annoying. God. That's um, too much. Became, I mean, yeah, that's too much. She was, I mean, she was stalked by her mother's friends. Like, that's crazy. Um, she was yeah. spied upon. Um, yeah. She became close friends with her tutor, Mary Somerville, who introduced her to a man named Charles Babbage in 1833. Um, she had a strong respect and affection for Somerville, and they corresponded for many years. Uh, other acquaintances, including scientists, Andrew Cross, Sir David Brewster, Charles Wheatstone, Michael Faraday, and the author, Charles Dickens. I feel like we keep coming mm. back to Charles Dickens. Like, no, no, Charles Dickens. Um, she was presented at court at the age of 17, and this is a quote, became a popular belle of the season, in part because of her brilliant mind. She was very, very smart. By 1834, nice. she was a regular at court and attended various events. Uh, she was considered very charming. There is a lot 
of information about her. I am not talking about all of it because I think to some degree it's on the side of boring. Um, it's very, you know, like this level of white privilege is rather dull. <laughs> so, like, if you are curious about the ins and outs and the rumors and the that, please feel free to read up. I don't want to torture you with it. Uh, so, but I will say that on July 8th, 1835, she married, you thought about white privilege, get this ready, are you ready? William right. A. Baron King becoming Lady King. And then there are right. considerable examples of how many houses they owned and where they were located. You get the dress. Oh, I see, I see. Mm-hmm. So they had three children. Byron, so she missed her father, even though she never met him. Um, Anne Isabella and Ralph Gordon. Ralph Gordon sounds like the guy in Honeymooners, doesn't it? Not like oh, yeah. an aristocrat. Yeah. Like, Ralph! Like, that's what I'm that's what I mean. <laughs> hey, Ralphie boy. <laughs> Ralphie. Um, okay, so in the 1840s, um, and she you know, just gave birth in 1839. Um, she had some, some scandals showed up. Oh. And this is, I love, from a relaxed approach to extramarital relationships with men. I like that phrasing, don't you? <laughs> he was, oh. Um, Oh, she did what she wanted to do, and it was him and him and him. Um, And so, you know, like, it doesn't say there was rumors of affairs. And then she loved gambling. She apparently lost more than 3,000 pounds on the horses during the late 1840s. That is so much money. Um, She was going to have, I would think she'd be better at gambling. Right. Well, mm, she... She formed a syndicate with male friends, because most women did not do this, and an ambitious attempt in 1851 to create a mathematical model for successful large bets. She was a little too confident. This went disastrously mm. wrong. She was thousands of pounds in debt, uh, and then she so she had to admit it all to her husband. Mm. Um, but And she was also, I will point out, that she was ill on and off her whole life. Um, she did continue her education even throughout her bouts of illness. Um, and um, she was taught mathematics again at an early age because her mother was obsessed with rooting out the insanity, which she was pretty sure, like, was handed down to her. Um, her mother she, found a little uh, baddie herself. I'm so. like, where do you think she got the insanity? Which one? You know, which I'm um, just, also, you know, people who are super religious sometimes. Uh, yeah. Have these traits as well. So. That's true. You know, it's a similar. Yeah. Carry situation. Well, so they're know, so worried about like your soul and it's like, why are you worried about mine? Like, what you doing? What you doing in the dark? You look in the mirror. You ask that, yeah. that some questions. Thanks. Exactly. Um, so she was, she was the educa- her education was very, was very important. So she was privately schooled in Math and Science by William Friend, William King, and Mary Somerville, which we talked about. Um, and one of her later tutors was the mathematician and logician Augustus de Morgan. So if you're listening and these names sound cool, cool. They they don't, I don't know who these people are, but I bet you they're good. They're very good. That is what I should have been better educated. But America, what do you want from me? All right. So 
she believes that intuition and imagination were critical to effectively applying math and science concepts. She valued metaphysics as much as mathematics, viewing both as tools for exploring, quote, the unseen worlds around us. So she met Babbage in uh, June 1833, and later that month, he invited her to see the prototype for his difference engine. Right. She became fascinated with the machine and used her relationship with, with Somerville to visit Babbage as often as she could. He was impressed by her intellect and analytic skills. He called her, quote, the enchantress of number. In 1843, he wrote to her, forget this world and all its troubles, and if possible, its multitudinous charlatans, everything in short but the enchantress of number. I think he was smitten by a by a good-looking woman, woman who was very smart. Yeah. yeah. Um, during a nine-month period in 1842 to 1843, she translated the Italian mathematician Luigi's Menabre's article on Babbage's new, newest proposed machine called the Analytical Engine. With the article, she appended a set of notes, which she called notes. Very clear. So she expl- explained the analytical engine's function was difficult um, cause, because many other scientists did not really grasp the concept, and the British establishment had shown little interest in it. Um, her notes even had to explain how the analytical engine differed from the original difference engine. Her work was well-received at the time, um, and the scientist Michael Faraday described himself as a supporter of her. So these notes contain what many consider to be the very first computer program, um, which is essentially an algorithm designed to be carried out by a machine. So his other historians reject this perspective, um, and point out that Babbage's personal notes from the years 1836 and 1837 it contained the first programs for the engine. But her notes are important in the early history of computers. She also developed a vision of the capability of computers to go beyond mere calculating or number crunching, um, while many others, including Babbage, focused only on those capabilities. Her mindset of poetical science led her to ask questions about the analytical engine, which is shown in her notes, to examine how individuals in society relate to technology as a collaborative tool, which is legit. I'm reading this on an iPad right now. I think that's funny. Yeah. Um, she didn't really believe in artificial intelligence. Um, she was okay. clear on it, can, it can't originate anything. It can uh, do whatever we know how to do and order it to perform it. Um, and obviously that has been much debated, but, you know, if you watch enough sci-fi, you guys don't build the Cylons. It does not work out in the end. (laughs) Um, So some biographers and some computer scientists and historians, uh, don't think she's really the first computer programmer, but she's generally given credit for it. There's, there's a a man, Doron Swade, Swad Swade. Um, and he, who is a specialist on history of computing um, and is known for his work on Babbage. He analyzed four claims about her. Um, that The four claims are that she was a mathematical genius. She made an influential contribution to the analytical engine. She was the first computer programmer, and she was the prophet of the computer age. Now, he says, just number four, that she was a prophet of the computer age. Um she wasn't I mean, a mathematical genius. 
But I think that's amazing. Like, I feel like everyone... I know, I'm going to say, like, she... I mean, like, she's a woman, and she's thought to have been, like, at the start of, like, programming? Like, that's pretty fucking amazing. Excuse my language. When I was a a child, I was in fifth grade, and I remember we read a book on the future, and it had a girl, I remember this very clearly, going shopping with her mother to the mall, and it was looking, they were looking at a computer, and through the computer, they were walking through the mall and looking at the stores, and, and they were trying, they were trying on clothes, but just digitally, and then they bought things digitally, and they said, do you think that's the future? And I was like, no, no, that's not the future. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense to me. Even still, when Amazon showed up, you know, you can order it on Amazon. I was like 20, and I was like, no, you can't. That doesn't make any sense. So, like, in the 1840s, I know. That's amazing. I think it's amazing. So, her and Babbage had a minor falling out. This is a little technical. When the papers were published, when he tried to leave his own statement, which was criticizing the government's treatment of his engine as an unsigned preface, which he, which could have been mistakenly interpreted as a joint declaration. Um, mm. When Taylor's scientific memoirs ruled that the statement should be signed, Babbage wrote to her asking her to withdraw the paper. This was the first that she knew he was leaving it unsigned, and she wrote back refusing to withdraw the paper. Um, historian Benjamin Woolley theorized that his actions suggested he had so enthusiastically sought Ada's involvement and so happily indulged her because of her celebrated name, which I think is like, you know, maybe a little shitty. But, yeah. you know, like that he was, it, I mean, it sounds to me like she added to it, that she saw the computer as a possibility in a way that no one else had. Um, but their, yeah. they, their friendship did recover, and they continued okay. to, to stay friends. Um, but on August 12th, 1851, he, she was dying of cancer and she wrote him asking to be her executor. Oh, wow. Um, she died of uterine cancer in 1852 at the age of 36. Oh, wow. I know. Back then, so man. young. I God, know. Life is hard. This is a rich white lady. Mm-hmm. A right? problem. Yeah. Then they all oh, screwed. Um, so you know young. the play Arcadia? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. One of Sal and I's, like, favorite plays. We've always wanted to do the scene with Thomasina. And, oh, my God, I forgot the character Sal would play. But I would play Thomasina. Um, the, her character is based on Ada Lovelace. Um, really? Lord Byron is in the play. Such a great play. It's one of my favorite plays. Um, oh wow. And it's, it's, it's a very like heady play, but it's just brilliant. Um, there wow. are a lot of modern, uh, connections to Ada Lovelace. If you look it up, there's, a, there's a lot of technicalities in what she did and how she did it that I did not get into because that's just a lot of words. I don't think you want to hear, but if you're interested to look it up, it is interesting. 
Um, but the, I like, was a lot my, of words. my science brain went. Yeah, mm, I don't know if we can take that many words right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, so that funny. is my my lady. Well, thank you so much for that, um, guys. I hope that you uh, got something out of this week's episodes, and um, I hope we brought you a little sunshine in this this uh crazy crazy world we're living in and i hope that you are safe and sanitized um and yep (laughs) um, safe and sanitized uh just a reminder to um tweet at us or you know like our things and uh, tell your friends about us at notorious wm pod on facebook and on twitter our email address is notoriouswmpod at gmail.com our instagram is notorious women podcast and um, if you want to help us to become a patron, you can do that on um, our page at patreon.com. You can do that for as little as a dollar mm-hmm. a month. You can do $2, $5, $10, or you can give us a one-time donation to help us out. Um, but we really appreciate you guys letting us do this. We appreciate every time you download or you share it with people. Um, you're keeping Tell us your sane. friends. Tell your friends. Uh, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get this podcast, Stitcher. Um, And, guys, we will see you next week. And you hang in there. Please stay safe, sanitized, and happy. Okay? Yes. All All right, right, guys. guys. We'll see you next week. Okay. Yes, we will. Bye. Bye.